Hey, this is Tad Kinchler from Blues Traveler. You're listening to my weekly mixtape with Brian Colburn. Catch the show. It's amazing. I just had an unbelievable time. And Brian is probably the best interview I've ever had in my life. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. When I started podcasting in 2018, one of my goals was to talk to the musicians who have made the music that is the soundtrack to my life. And over the years, I've slowly but surely made that goal a reality. And tonight, I get to check off a bucket list band that, for anyone who knows me personally knows this group is part of my personal Mount Rushmore of music. So without further ado, I am honored to welcome Tad Kinchla, bassist for Blues Traveler, to my weekly mixtape. Tad, thank you so much for joining me tonight, man. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. It's good to uh, hear your voice again. Uh, obviously, we've crossed paths in the in the past, but maybe not in a talking environment. <laughs> yeah, we did the show back in 2009 at the Bergen Pack yep. in Englewood, New Jersey. It was an absolute blast. One of my highlights of my musical career. And now this is one of the highlights of my podcasting one. So, All right. Well, happy to be part of both. <laughs> well, I'd like to start by asking the same question I ask all of my first time guests, and that is, what does the word mixtape mean to you? Uh, well, I feel like I was born in an era where that was actually a thing. You know, back in the day when technology wasn't quite as readily available, you would, you know, kind of have to curate your own, you know, based, all of us listen to music growing up, all my friends, and based on what you're listening to and your favorite songs and things that kind of were important to you or things that you might want to share with someone else, you would have to literally go and it usually involved two cassette players, mm-hmm. one playing and then the other had a record feature. And you would actually, in real time, mix a tape together of songs that, you know, you depending on how you wanted to convey the tape, what it was for, because there's obviously various levels of mixtapes, you would kind of, you know, record individual songs onto a tape and then you would actually write in on the label, on the cassette, and, and then... If you got fancy, you'd have a Sharpie and you'd like do some doodling and then you'd give it, you'd give it to someone. And uh, when I envision mixtapes, that's kind of where, where I go with that, you know, standard uh, audio cassette tapes. Awesome. Well, I'd like to start actually in the middle of Blues Traveler's story because you joined the band in 1999 after the sad passing of Bobby Sheehan. And being that Chan Kinsler, the band's lead guitarist, is your brother. Was there any trepidation or pause within the rest of the group when you joined? That's a good question. Uh, you know, my, well, A, uh, you know, it was just to give a little backstory to that. It was kind of an interesting time. I shouldn't say interesting. It was, it was kind of an emotional time for everyone because yes. I was good friends with Bobby and obviously the band started and formed with Bobby and, you know, plowed forward and, and had their successes with Bob with four and all that. And then they tried out five bass players, and I was one of them. I happened to still be playing. I kind of went a circuitous route. I went to Brown and played lacrosse and got hooked back into music because I had always played music. And then I was in a three-piece that actually went and moved to New York after graduating and started playing. And so I, my chops were like, you know, still there because I was playing at the time. And so I was one of the five guys they asked to try out. 
And it was weird because my tryout was the first gig in New York after Bobby's passing. So it was kind of a cathartic reunion of people right after Bobby had passed. So it was the first time everyone had the chance to kind of air things out. So it was, you know, it was kind of an, it was a tough gig to play, I should say, but went over well. The guys with, the, I think with, they waited two weeks to tell me, which was really classy. <laughs> I think Jan <laughs> told him, he was like, let him sweat it out. And then uh, Dave, Dave, for sure, the manager, another Princeton High School graduate called me up. Not even Chan. It was like they had their manager call me and I got the gig. And I have to say, you know, having known the guys for a long time, you know, I was already friends with them. So I, I, you know, we're all real sarcastic bastards and, and, you know, we, we all get along really well and have the same sense of humor. And, but I never really sensed anything, but, you know, acceptance into the, the, the band and really the fans as well just made it that transition because it's a major transition. I don't play like Bobby, you know, and and it's, you know, kind of we moved in a different direction because I, I told them straight up, like, if you want to get Bobby, hire a studio guy that can cop Bobby because I don't play like Bobby. You know, it's we're just different players. And with that being said, the band decided and kind of gelled together and said, let's move on. And the first thing we did was write an album. So initially I jump in and I throw these tunes I have and and right away I'm in the fold. And and it was you know, I never sensed any kind of resentment. I'm sure there were tough times as far as personally, you know, just moving on, playing with a different player and things that, you know, unsaid things that bands get to have. So it was um, nothing but, you know, acceptance from the guys. And I never felt it. If it was there, I never felt it, you know. Well, the album that you're talking about, the first album that you and keyboardist Ben Wilson was on board for was 2001's Bridge, and that album is filled with classic tracks like Back in the Day, Just For Me, All Hands, Sadly a Fiction, all songs that have been in the band's live rotation since the album's release. I've always considered the Bridge album to be the beginning of the quote-unquote 2.0 era of the band because you and Ben in the mix gave this band new avenues to explore musically. And I think this album really capitalizes on that. Now you personally wrote two songs for the album, the lead single girl inside my head and the live staple. You reach me. Can you talk about your first writing contributions for the band and how you approached writing music with blues traveler in mind? Yeah. Well, both of those were ideas I had been kicking around, one of which was in a, a different uh, songwriter friend of mine. We had just started Girl, and I had gotten the lyrics down and kind of the, the melodies and stuff. So it just it was one of those things where like I didn't know what my contribution was going to be when we went down to write. Like I didn't know any process that Blues Traveler had. I, you know, I'd seen him in a studio, but not, you know, a writing process. And sure enough, we just get up and the first day and make kind of a schedule. And it's like a round robin where each day the next person contributes something. And we do about three or four cycles where each guy contributes, you know, three or four songs. And then we go over the songs we like best and then do like a rough of those and then have producers listen to them, not knowing anything about who wrote whatever. And then uh, we get like the 12 best out of them. So that was, I was like super psyched because they're like, hey, tomorrow's your day. And I was like, what? So I went <laughs> home and kind of, you know, got the acoustic guitar and kind of made a little form out of Girl Inside My Head and brought it in. And John was like, oh, this is great. Uh, let's do this. And, and then, of course, he takes the lyrics and 
adds about twice as many and, and then, <laughs> and like kind of rewrites the thing. But that's just kind of the process. You know, he's the singer. He's entitled to his own, you know, interpretation of any of that. And it's always kind of been that way. But it was, I was really struck by how democratic the process was, how it's like, you know, we're all for one, one for all. We each get a turn. And, and then, you know, Reach Me was a little riff. I had just been, I had, I had played in, I guess, a band in college. I think we made a song out of it or something, but it was just a warm up thing that I had always done. And I did it for John and he's like, oh, wait, keep doing that, you know? And we kind of kept, it was kind of old bluegrass style where everyone, I just kept playing the thing and then everyone kind of picked up some parts and then I just shifted and kind of changed some chords. We all kind of shifted and and it, it was a really organic, cool process. I mean, I was just super stoked to be contributing, but then to be actually like within the first three days being, you know, kind of honing in and doing writing and 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 that experience with the guys was really, really impressive, not only in that it was, you know, so organic, but how kind of shared a process it was. It was really a, a cool experience. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Well, also in 2001 was one of the most transcendent concert experiences of my life. December 16th, just a few months post 9-11, the band took the stage at the Roseland Ballroom along with Michael Franti and Spearhead and led a four-hour celebration of all things New York, including John's spine-tingling rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner, which could be heard on your live album, What You and I Have Been Through, as well as bringing first responders up on stage for a rendition of The Path along with Radioactive from Spearhead. That show will forever be one of my favorite concert moments, and I'd like to know what it was like for the band to step up on stage a few months post 9-11 in the heart of New York City and try to bring some levity to the hardest moment in that city's history. Yeah. Hey, that's a good, good recollection. I'm glad that you were part of that. Yeah, that was, that was a pretty, I think we didn't really like realize I, we had been on tour. I, I, we were in New Mexico when, when 9-11 happened 
And then we made our way back. And I remember we were all, I was all sitting, we were all sitting up front in the bus because we'd all lived in New York for years. And I was still living in Brooklyn over in Williamsburg. And, you know, just to see the skyline was just so, you know, kind of profoundly humbling to come up and just realize what happened firsthand. And so we were all, you know, everyone was emotional who lived in New York, who had friends. Mm -hmm. and You know, it was just such a kind of weird time. But to be able to to have a gig on the books there, especially with Fronty, it was such a great tour with them. But to get up in Roseland and be surrounded by Jersey and Connecticut and New York people was really special. You know, it definitely, it 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 was something we really enjoyed doing. I, I think it was a couple of days later where we looked back and I was like, wow, that was kind of like, you know, an interesting kind of a deep thing to happen, you know, that we happened to have a gig there and, you know, in that time. So it was, you know, a great place to be, especially Roseland with such deep roots with the band, you know. It was kind of like coming home. Well, being I mentioned that song, The Path, that song was initially part of a concept album that the band recorded called Decisions of the Sky, that in 2000, week by week, the band released as a, I'm going to sound really old school here, but as a free MP3 on the band's webpage. (laughs) There were talks at one point of there being an official CD release of this album with a fifth unreleased song, but it never came to fruition. And on the band's 25 compilation, three of those songs, 12 Swords, the Sun and the Storm and Traveler's Suite made the track listing, but the path was omitted. The liner notes acknowledged it, but I've always wondered why the path wasn't included. And in this age of digital releases, more importantly, will the world ever see Decisions of the Sky released as it was originally intended? Oh, uh, you know, I, that's a good question on why that, that was never released. It was kind of above my pay grade. <laughs> you know, it was... um it was a concept album. John had been kicking around and we actually, you know, we went in it. Recording that was probably one of the hardest things I did with the band as far as like kicking back to my old sight reading and, and you know, kind of band times when, you know, or, or uh, orchestra as far as having like music. I had, you know, deep notes because the songs were like 12, 15 minutes with like a change. You know, it wasn't a standard format. It was just like a section another section, another section, another section. So without writing down and noting it, because we don't, we don't work that way. No one writes, right. you know, sheet music and say, Hey, play this, you know, it's, <laughs> rock bands don't really do that. So, but there were a lot of parts. And so there was just like squirrely little notes about how to, you know, that I recognize and how, Oh, this is coming up or that, you know, like open E, open G, you know, just little like flags that, you know, kind of cued me on where things were going. But we sat down and cranked that out in like two days. Um, wow. And it was a lot of music. I mean, we had worked on parts, but we we just kind of nailed it. It was getting in there. Like once it starts, we kind of, you know, if there weren't really many fixes, but yeah, I, I digress. Sorry. As far as why that didn't get released, I don't, I do not know specifically. It might be a John question where he didn't want to do it partially. It wanted to be one thing. And if it couldn't be one thing, he just didn't, he, he didn't want to do it all together. So I don't have a, a legitimate answer for you, but that's about all I can offer. Well, another thing that happened that night in New York City was the band played a version of Runaround in a minor key. And this version was entitled Fucked Run. And it was played live for several years and then kind of just fell off 
the live map. And I assumed in 2007 when the band released Cover Yourself that I was finally going to get a studio version of this amazingly dark and melodic take on one of the band's biggest hits. But alas, the band took the song in a different direction from now both versions of Run Around. So my question is, is there a studio version of Fucked Run out there? And if so, will it ever see the light of day? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a fun one to play. In fact, we yeah. tried to revisit it a couple times and we actually have randomly like one John, we will come in and John will be like, hey, let's just make that transition like fucked run and then go to, you know, something else in G, you know, play prof or some. And uh, I, I'm just trying to think of the last time we probably within the last year or two we've we've hit it, but we've never recorded it. Wow. Yeah. It's never been recorded by us. Maybe next time we get in the studio, we should just lay something down <laughs> so we have it. But it's kind of like Run is such a kind of iconic pop song, you know, success song. It's kind of like juicing, you know, a stone where you're like, <laughs> hey, maybe they want to hear another version that we just totally changed the melody and played in minor keys. You know, I think that's the the idea is that Run has gotten a lot of success for the band and it's maybe bad juju to try to re-record it. For that purpose, you know. Yeah, from another musician standpoint, though, hearing that being reimagined in a dark light, the minor key gives it that dark feel. And when yeah. John holds the high note for the chorus, it just kind of sends it into this different musical place. And yeah. to me, it really makes you focus on the lyrics more than the pop version, which you're kind of up and dancing and enjoying. And I think that was the part of that song that was so interesting to me. Yeah. No, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, in a way, it's almost too bad that we weren't able to throw different lyrics to, to, to just the four uh, chord, you know, minor dirge, because it's kind of cool. And John's melody on it is really cool. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, yeah. It's an interesting, you know, I, I don't know who came up with that. I think it was already in place. Maybe by the time I joined, they had like been tossing it around as like kind of a, hey, let's start it normal and then go weird. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in 2003, the band released what could very well be my favorite Blues Traveler album, which, depending on the day, it's neck and neck with Travelers and Thieves, The Incredible Truth Be Told. And I'd love to talk about this album for a couple of minutes, if you don't mind. Sure. And the first song I'd like to talk about is Can't See Why, because as a bass player myself, I have to give love to my favorite bass line on the album. That (laughs) bass line is absolute fire. Oh, thanks. When you're contributing songs to the band, other examples from the album, Letter and Let Go, Partner in Crime, did you write those songs with a specific bass line in mind, or were you kind of writing the music and chords first and then designing the bass line after the song was kind of in the band's hands? You know, Letter and Let Go was more chordal, but Partner in Crime and I Can't See Why, both of those were written like riff style. Like I wrote the riff, and then showed Chan, and I actually paired back some of the bass parts to not be playing the riff and have Chan carry it. So they were, it was all like old school, like, you know, kind of Zeppelin, you know, where you got the riff and then you built the song around it. Nice. Yeah. Well, Letter and Let Go also has one of my favorite lyrics of any Blues Traveler song ever. And that line is, you never get the one you dreamed of. You get to dream with the one you get. According to the liner notes, both you and John wrote the lyrics together for this one so i am just curious who came up with that line 
Oh, that that's vintage John Popper. <laughs> yeah, that line, the first time I heard it, I'll, I'll tell you right now, my wife and I were driving through Disney World. We were not engaged at the time. A few weeks later, we would be. And that line came on and I literally held my arm up to her and said, holy shit, the hair on my arm stood up from that lyric. Oh, and wow. It's, it's just one that always resonated with me. Yeah, John, some, he has a, 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 he's a good songwriter. <laughs> he writes good lyrics, man. It, it'll surprise. Yeah, sometimes it, uh, I will play a song, we'll even record it, we'll be playing it live, like, you know, the next year or two years later. And I'll like choose that night to like listen to the lyrics fully. And I'll be like, oh shit, I didn't know he was saying that. <laughs> you know, because you get, you know, I like, my, it's just like my wife and I, when she listens to a song, she hears all the lyrics. So she sings all these songs. And I'm like, how do you know the lyrics? Because when I'm listening to the songs, I'm, I'm listening to totally different things. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the beats, bass parts a lot, like a riff, like good, like melodic single line stuff. And I'm totally like, I could literally hear a song and not know what the chorus was from the lyrics. And so it's an interesting thing, you know, the way, you know, songs are written like that. Well, Thinnest of Air is another track on that album that's maintained its spot in the band's live sets over the years. And it's probably one that my wife and I agree are one of the highlights from this incredible album. With so many albums to pull from in your discography and an obvious bank of hit songs that really can no longer be denied during your live shows, how does the band decide on which songs make it past the quote-unquote album tour cycle into the quote-unquote this song's here for the long run mentality? Hmm, that's, these are good questions, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I'd have to think. Um, so... so uh, it's an interesting process, actually. I mean, you're you're bang on in that respect. Like we go through that process where, I mean, we're we're now we've played long enough and together and recorded enough. We have good sense about it. But some like when you're writing the song in the beginning, first couple two or three albums, you didn't know what would stick. You know, it's like throwing pasta against the wall and just you know because sometimes if it was too layered. A, a recording or produced a, the song was too produced and didn't have independently strong parts you'd play it live and be like oh wow that sucks <laughs> you know like <laughs> or like there were real heavy harmonies that at the time we couldn't hit you know because john's up in a different register and yep. ben and i couldn't like try to get to him and then there's others that aren't really prevalent on the album you know they're just kind of but live just kick ass you know it'll have a couple like bass and guitar parts together or something or like you know, you play it live and you're like, oh my God, that was really fun. And people seem to like re respond to it. So we don't have the formula down <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> kudos to anyone who does, but that is a process that we go through. And I don't think at the time, Thinnest of Air was, we were really thinking it happened so fast writing. It's not like we sit, write the parts and then like experiment with it on the road for a while. We're not really that kind of band. We, we go in write and then get a producer and then record. So we're literally still tweaking our part as we're recording. I've definitely had it where like Ben or me or Ben, I mean, Ben can overdub, but like the rhythm section, you know, we'll go in and uh, we'll have a first takedown and I'm like, oh, wait, 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 let's do something else. And I'll think, I'll listen back to the first take and be like, I got to change the part. So it's like more locked in. So we're literally writing the parts. So Thinnest of Air, I think we were, you know, kind of, a, it was a quick song and a lot of little intricacies we were still thinking about the song while we we're doing it and, it and it didn't really dawn on us that that would actually end up being like a good live song. 
And the formula for you know what stays playable is really like how it performs and the reaction from the crowd and also the way we feel playing it. And there are several songs that we've like, you know, indefinitely thrown out as a live option. But most of them, the first time you play it, you know whether it's going to be an okay live one. And then if you play it a whole cycle, a lot of times if it's new, we'll play it an entire tour, then it'll be in our bones and we'll be able to be like, reference it whenever we want. And if you can like play it two years later and have the same response, then that's kind of a keeper. Well, one last song I want to talk about from Truth Be Told, and then I promise we'll move on. Mm-hmm. The powerful ballad Sweet and Broken that was co-written by John Popper and Chris Barron of the Spin Doctors. A few episodes ago, Aaron Comas of the Spin Doctors was a guest on the show, and we talked about the early New York City days that included the spinning traveler shows and such. But to this day, the bands are still extremely close. Can you talk about the relationships that the two bands have continued to forge since you joined in 1999? Yeah, well, to give some reference, Chris went to Princeton High School. So we're, right. we're all high school buddies. And when the band decided to make the jump and go to New York, Chris actually rolled into New York as well. And he was kind of doing singer-songwriter stuff. But, you know, we've all known each other from back in high school. And, you know, that bond is, you know, if you're a high school guys going to New York and playing in the same scene, like you're about as close as you can get because you're, you're going to hold on to that, those friendships. And they clearly, Spin Doctors, I mean, it's, it was like lightning striking twice in the same spot with Spin Doctors and Blues Traveler coming from Princeton, right. both getting hits, you know, in the same, you know, two or three year period. I mean, that's, that was just like, no one expected that. And it, it, it was very lucky and chance had to do with it and talent, but Chris has been, you know, uh, we've we've probably haven't gone more than like two or three years since 2000 without ha- playing a gig with Chris or the Spin Doctors. I mean, it, it, I think that we're irrevocably tied together via the 90s and also the fact that if the name comes up, we're like, yes, let's do a gig with them. Let's, you know, let's try to make it happen. And we're, we're still, we just, just, I'm trying to think of a lot. We just played with him, you know, not all that long ago. He came out in the... Was it the fall? Our last tour, our spring tour, um, he actually opened a bunch of shows doing uh, mm-hmm. playing guitar and singing solo. And it was actually really cool because he's gotten really good at guitar. And it was really fun. I mean, there's something really cool about seeing John and Chris on stage. Like it brings back memories of when I saw them, you know, when I was in like, you know, seventh grade or whatever. And they were at the, you know, the church across from the high school playing gigs. <laughs> Well, while we're talking about co-writing, I want to jump ahead to 2015's Blow Up the Moon, which is a very unique album in the Blues Traveler discography because every song on the album was a collaboration, along with artists such as NSYNC's J.C. Chases, The Dirty Heads, Hanson, Plain White Tees, and Bowling for Soup, just to name a few. The title track, Blow Up the Moon, which features both J.C. Chases and 303, happens to be my kid's personal favorite blues traveler song (laughs) so i'm just pulling that one out as an example but as a whole can you talk about how these collaborations kind of came to fruition and maybe how those sessions differed for you versus other albums in the blues traveler catalog yeah that that was an interesting we had a a management team that was kind of they're out in vegas and they're a little bit green and i mean if you look at the list of, of like you know collaborations it's like Someone took, uh, you know, a wall full of band names, you know, printed all over it and just randomly threw darts. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> there's no like, I mean, it, it's about as random. You couldn't have bet on who we were going to do a collaboration with and been right. <laughs> you know, it was really interesting. So our, our management at the time, I think 
those were contacts they had made. So we didn't know this at all, but they didn't have a huge portfolio of people to call. So they just called some people. I think one of our, our manager's assistant was somehow related to JC Chasez. And, you know, the, the 303, I'm not sure. I think there was a gig that one of their openers did with them, but they, they just called up a bunch of people and we took the yeses, you know, and we did, we found this out kind of after the fact, you know, cause we weren't putting in calls and we were, we just kind of went with their concept. Like it's going to be random, but like, we feel like it's going to be an interesting, you know, kind of collaborations. And that writing process was, was really cool. We traveled to each place and then, um, we'd like rent a studio and basically meet the people sit down, like have coffee and lunch maybe, and then start like writing back, hey, any ideas? And it was literally like whoever played the first thing, we'd be like, okay, let's try that. <laughs> you nice. know? And sometimes it was us or John being like, here's an idea. And he had some lyrics and they would do lyrics first and then we'd fill in the music. And then some others were like, here's a couple chords that well, I was thinking this could be really cool. And then we'd get the, the chord structure down and then John and the, the other singer would like kind of, work on on lyrics together. Well, while we're on the subject of unique albums, I mentioned this one earlier. Listeners of My Weekly Mixtape will recall episode 36 because John O'Manson was the guest on that show, and we talked about his collaboration with the band On the Mountains Win Again for the 2007 release Cover Yourself, an album that the band took their biggest hits and re-recorded them with new arrangements. Can you talk about the mindset behind taking some of the band's most beloved songs and rearranging them, and then how the fans reacted to hearing these songs under a new lens. Yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, we were in Austin at the time, and we uh, Jim Eno produced that. He's the drummer from Spoon and has a studio in Austin. Uh, I think he still does. But anyway, it was really a cool time. Our management, I think, here's the deal. It was like we had recorded something, and John was like, I'm not, I, I don't have it in me to do a full writing session and and doing a whole album full of material. Like right now, I'm just, I'm like, he, you know, he was just, they were taught, we were tired, we were torn a lot. So the management came up with these, like, well, what about if we like just re-envisioned, you know, your own stuff? And we were like, John was like, sweet, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, no lyrical work. <laughs> and so literally, I think literally that was the, the where that, that brainchild came from. It was like, this is the least amount of work I can do. <laughs> But be creative at the same time. So it, it turned into a really fun project. But I think it was like that was the kind of the kernel of where that idea came from. And then we would, you know, kind of just sit and throw out ideas of what style to play the song in and then just kind of reimagine it. I think most of the time we stayed in the same key and didn't like didn't go like major minor like that run thing. But it was super cool, like kind of basically you're writing a new song, but just putting <laughs> applying the other you know the old <laughs> lyrics to it so boiling it down that's about what we did and it was a really fun process fortunately and unfortunately those songs really didn't stick live we did them a couple times and it didn't resonate really i think there were some disappointed people um <laughs> when we did it so I, a lot of those i think i don't think we we play any of those versions anymore live but it's a good it's a good point to bring up maybe in the maybe coming up this fall we can maybe implement some of those <laughs> now blues traveler has always been one of my favorite live bands and i don't think we can discuss this band without a little bit of a focus on the live shows and at one point when you went to see blues traveler in the early 2000s 
there was never a guarantee that you'd hear run around, hook, or but anyway in a set list, but you could always expect something deeper, like business as usual from Straight On Till Morning, Conquer Me from Save Our Soul, or Optimistic Thought mashed up with a sprinkling of Kenny Rogers' The Gambler. Yeah. And I remember a run in November of 2002 where I caught the band several nights in a row at Irving Plaza in New York City where the band did a no-repeat run. Yeah. And to me, that really lends itself to the jam band community mindset, something I've always felt that Blues Traveler embraced in live shows. So how does the decision come within the band to craft set lists? And has that jam band mindset evolved over the years in terms of what songs you guys plan to play at a given show? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the times have changed just like, you know, the way music, you know, Bands don't make money selling albums anymore. They make money touring, you know, or, you know, you could be in the middle of the outback in Australia and have 5 million views of a song you wrote in your house. You know, like things have changed in the industry, you know, let's say that. So back in the day, like when I first joined, we were doing those two sets a night and there was a, a real hunger for that. And we were, I think we were more positioned in the jam band scene, having come out of it and kind of helped start it, let's say, with the Horde and all that. And mm -hmm. and like our friends and peers were like, you know, Dave Matthews and Fish and Mo and, you know, all, all these bands widespread. So we were, I think, more positioned with that then. And the two sets, the people coming, like, I remember where we were up in like upstate New York. And I remember like we started at 10, started, but we played like an hour and a half first set, which was the shorter one, like a 30 minute break. Second set started at like 12.15 and then played. To, it was like 2.30 when we ended. And like people were still there. It didn't empty. <laughs> like so nowadays, if we got out and played a two, you know, four hours, it would be like a quarter of the people still there. And especially if it's past like 10.30 at night, because like most <laughs> of the, are, you know, there's a lot of parents and, and responsible people that come see us. And they kind of, I have to say it's shifted. You know, we we go in, clearly there are songs we, we feel an obligation to play because there are people with that expectation. And we're very fortunate to be still playing music. So obviously we're going to cater to that kind of mindset. But as of now, we, it's really shortened up. People want to see one set, you know, and be, be out of there in time to like get a night's sleep. It's not quite the, you know, the party that it used to be. And we still have the jam band mentality in that, each of us takes a turn writing a set on cycle since basically I joined the band. It's been the same five, you know, it's five of us in rotation. Uh, actually, I can swear, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, by all means. Yeah, oh, yeah. So it's big cock, tiny blowjob. <laughs> and, and that's been, and it's hysterical because we say it's almost like a business term now. And we, we forget it's just such like ludicrous, like, what are you talking about? But that's the order in which we've been going for the last since I joined. So for 20 years and probably before that, they were doing the same. And each night, like there are requisite songs that we're going to put in there if John's voice is, you know, up for it. I mean, you know, the unfortunate thing is John had such great, he has great pipes, but his early songs, he really went for it up high. So a lot of those songs, he's like, oh, dude, I cannot, like, there's no way I can hit that. So you, we kind of have to retire some songs Sometimes we try switching keys, but we've retired songs that are, you know, not, you know, he's not able to hit with as much confidence as he wants. But the jam band stuff, we still have a different set 
with the kind of requisite songs, you know, the framework. And then there's probably, I'd say like three to four audibles at this point where we're at. We're playing like 90 minutes or so, 75 to 90. It's been kind of, you know, we were just out Big Ed Todd. It was about 75 to 90. So there's three or four songs that are audibles each night that will will shift up. And, you know, you tend to get comfortable sometimes because it's a different venue. You're like, hey, that worked last night. Let's do that again. But in general, you know, we try to keep cycling in old songs and some surprises and maybe some weird covers and, you know, do do what we can. But we're definitely not in the jam band scene like where Fish is now. They've kind of almost expanded upon their jamming where we've kind of tightened up our show and it's not, you know, it's more of playing to the audience. Our audience isn't the the two set leave at two in the morning, you know, fan base anymore. Well, talking about the band's biggest hits that you say are, are, you know, staples of the show, Run Around, Hook, The Mountains Win Again, But Anyway, Carolina Blues. Is there a song that the band kind of universally considers to be the definitive blues traveler hit because you can ask different people and some people will say run around. Some people will say hook. Some people will say the mountains win again. So I'm curious what that thought is in the band. Uh, I would personally, I would say, but anyway, is the most definitive iconic blues traveler song. It was written a long time ago in high school. It's kind of intelligent lyrics, but still light. And it's a two chord vamp. And that's like what, like the band used to play like, you know, three hour sets at Nightingales and still with only, you know, not a whole lot of songs to play. And that like they would pick songs where it was like two chord vamps and somehow kept it interesting, <laughs> you know, and that's like a definitive characteristic of kind of the band being able to play just very simple songs, but kind of make it interesting. And each player kind of plays their instrument in that song. And it's kind of an, an integral part. However, it's not like a mind-blowing crazy. I mean, other than John, maybe like just freaking out. But I think, but anyway, to me is like the the kind of, you know, integral, the iconic Blues Traveler song. Now, in a Blues Traveler live show, the sets do change in some ways every night, as do the segues between the songs, because the band kind of mashes songs together. And as a musician, I've always wondered how the musical conversation unfolds on stage between the five of you to decide when the next change is about to take place. Well, it's a musical conversation. You know, we write our sets and then we have a bunch of figures and and symbols that mean like there's like a wave where we just hold the note. There's a dot, dot, dot where it's like a count in. And then there's the into, which is like a greater than or, you know, greater, a less than symbol or whatever. Yes. And those are completely open-ended. So we don't really discuss it. It's just like, oh, okay, we're jamming in there. If there's a key change, we might say like, oh, on Bren's cue. But that's about, other than that, it's just kind of a conversation with the music and we've just gotten kind of good at at being able to read each other. And it's just, you know, it changes. Some nights it's horrendous. You know, we'll have two of us will be up in D and, you know, so I'll still be like, oh, we've gone, you know, like you'll look around and get some weird looks. And, but then other nights it's just like, we'll decide to break it down and, and like, I'll stop playing or Ben will stop playing. And then Chan and I will start coming in and we'll rework a riff from the middle of the song to the start. So it's a pretty cool um, process. And it, it's one of the things I look forward to the most kind of in, in each night is like where we're going to end up when we go down that path. 
Now, over the years, the band has incorporated a ton of amazing covers into the set that almost feel that they're as much of the band's legacy as the hits themselves. A few that come to mind is the band's rendition of Charlie Daniels, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, and in more recent years, Sublime's What I Got and Radiohead's Creep. How do you guys decide which songs are quote-unquote live show worthy? Uh, Usually, I'd say most of all, it's got to be John's being comfortable singing it and pulling it off. Like That's kind of the, the main thing. We try to stay, you know, that's, it, it's tough for any band. You know, you want to play approachable songs that, you know, are inclusive to the audience, but aren't like the like give me's. So a cool song, like something that isn't like the single from the album, maybe like the second single or something, but it's important that in like some like Sublime, it's you're reaching out and saying, Hey, you know, this person might know that song. This is us doing it in our way. And I think that bridge is really helpful and it's a useful tool in a lot of scenarios at like festivals or, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're not playing your own show, you don't assume those people are fans of you. So you want to, you know, kind of reach out and say, Hey, you, you know, this song, like check out the way we do it, you know? Nice. Well, one of the live staples of Blues Traveler is the annual 4th of July show at Red Rocks, which has happened every year since 1994, with the exception of 1999 due to John's health and 2020 due to COVID. The band takes up shop and offers really unique, one-of-a-kind set lists, full album playthroughs, and other momentous live moments. Can you talk about what this tradition means to the band? Yeah, Red Rocks is like the cornerstone of our year. You know, it's really a keystone. It's probably our most important gig and our favorite gig to play. It's an amazing place. It's always a great crowd. We have we have the longest running tenure of any single event night at Red Rocks. I mean, it's something like 30 years, you know, with the exception of that one year where John couldn't. And it's a real, you know, big deal. We take that really seriously and try to vary it as much as we can. We've done a lot of different things. We've done some, uh, if it's the anniversary of an album, we've done like doing the album, but I think we're over that because it's like, that ends up being like, you play maybe three or four of the songs on any given album we play regularly, but the others we don't. So we play it front to back live, but having never rehearsed the other songs. So you end up with a couple (laughs) songs that are a little bit flat in there that are just kind of like, oh crap. Um, so we try to, I think now we're trying to just make it as cool an experience as we can, unless there's a big anniversary that John really wants to try to celebrate. I think it's, you know, it's kind of our most important show and, and it's, there's a legacy there of kind of, that was a big, the big, one of the big first shows the band ever did uh, as far as like big places that meant a lot to him. Well, selfishly, I'm going to bring up my favorite Blues Traveler gig of all time because that was June 2nd, 2009, when I had the honor and privilege of opening for you guys at the Bergen Pack in Englewood. And it was one of the most memorable musical experiences for me because I got to share the stage with a band that I admire. Now, my question to you is, is there a band that you have ever shared the bill with personally where you left the stage with that feeling of, man, I can't believe we got to share the stage with blank? Yeah. You know, for me, oddly enough, it was, you know, I mean, there were several times, you know, that we had played or opened that I was just like, this is, this is awesome. But uh, on like some festivals, like we, 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 Blue Strapper doesn't really go, I think Train and then maybe Bare Naked Ladies was like the only time we've ever gone out as like a precursor, you know, an opener. 
And so with Blues Traveler, it didn't happen that much. I mean, we'd share a stage at a festival. But oddly for me, like the most meaningful was, well, there were two. Personally, I played with John Popper Project and we did this thing where Taj Mahal was on stage at uh, yes. Warren's Christmas Jam. And I was just, yes. I love Taj Mahal. So it was, it, and my dad had passed away just just before. So it was like, I was in an emotional set and, and just meeting Taj and having, I was just, that personally was like, whoa. But the other one was Ziggy Marley. When he sat in with us and we at played with Ziggy on tour, there yeah. was something just so amazing about him singing the Bob Marley song, No Woman No Cry, that was just, it blew me away. And I, it just gave me shivers while we were rehearsing it. And then on stage, I was just like, oh my God, this is just, that something about that, you know, the, the timbre of his voice and the song and the place, it all came together. And that, that really was like a, you know, an honor to be a, a part of that, even though it wasn't an opening gig necessarily, but you know, it was one of those things where I was just like, duh. And then <laughs> on a personal note, when like O'Teal sat in and, and jams with us, you know, and he and I are trading licks or, or and Victor Wooten, those were like, oh. you know, I'm not worthy <laughs> kind of moments. I get it. Now, in 2021, the band released an album entitled Traveler's Blues. The title, awesome, by the way. A collection of blues cover songs, such as Sun Seal's Funky Bitch, which jam band fans also know as a popular song in the Fish universe, as well as a blues rock rendition of Gnarls Barkley's massive hit, Crazy, featuring Rita Wilson and John Schofield. And that album also featured guests like Chris Stone, Kingfish Ingram, Warren Haynes, Keb Moe. Can you talk about that full circle moment for the band doing an actual straight up blues album? Yeah, that was pretty surreal <laughs> to be. We, we were joking about the whole time going in, like we're actually playing blues. So, you know, we all kind of, you know, listened to a bunch of blues songs and obviously the ones that we did, but we tried to main it. What was hard is not to go like super bluesy with it and try to maintain just playing kind of our roles in our rendition of it obviously we're not we don't profess to be you know blues guys i mean obviously john i can easily see as but we're not you know that's not our forte and uh it was you know a little humbling to to get in and when you get into the minutiae of some of the blues stuff it's like what they're not playing is what's cool about it and we're more of like throw everyone's playing and it's a cacophony of you know a lot of people jamming in the mid-range and it was in, it was really interesting, and that's why I said it like humbling to kind of peel back and be like, "Wow, it's when they're not playing, it's the space that makes blues so cool, and it's no no choices as opposed to not a flurry of notes." And in going through the recording, it was it was really kind of fun to go through that process and and learn about the blues in in that sense. Well, now the band has just released Traveler's Soul, the sequel in part to Traveler's Blues, which features the band's take on soul classics, such as the lead single Fool For You, which was originally written by Curtis Mayfield and performed by The Impressions. And you guys took some liberties with the original recording, making it a unique Blues Traveler song, as well as a rounded reimagining of that classic track. Now, even though soul has always been a part of Blues Traveler's mindset, because a song like Money Back Guarantee from Bastardos immediately comes to my mind, this is the first time it's the focus of an entire Blues Traveler album. So can you talk about the mindset behind that around what songs you guys chose? 
Yeah, it was kind of a continuation. The the idea kind of from the get go with the the our record company who kind of presented it to us is that we do like three different genres over three albums, and the blues one we just, we just picked blues randomly and then kind of went through trying to curate which songs we want to do. And again, you know, it comes down to there's some vocal kind of that's the the centerpiece is like will John be able to and and get into singing this. And so that that did pretty well in in our I, I kind of came out well for us. You know, we felt that it was cool, and so we then picked soul as a kind of the next genre. And um, it was kind of the same process. Everyone kind of picked through some of their favorites and threw it into a pool. We had you know kind of a thread, and with the producer and the record company and the band, and and just kind of built a list, and then kind of took away things that wouldn't work necessarily. Uh, and then kind of looked into the keys and see, you know, kind of how they all fit together. And just, it, I mean, that, it's as simple as that. It's, you know, we we kind of went with like the ones we want to do. Well, the band offers their take on D-Light's classic Groove is in the Heart, which features Liv Warfield from Prince's New Power Generation. Now, the original is a funk bass masterclass from the legendary Bootsy Collins. And as a bass player to another one, not only did you step to the plate on this one dude you hit a friggin' home run because it feels like you're <laughs> tipping the hat to bootsy but you're also adding your unique style of playing to this song i'd love to know what your mindset was walking into approaching an iconic baseline without changing it so much that you take away from the heart of the song yeah that, that was an interesting one that was john <laughs> john john contributed that he just liked the song and we were like, well, yeah, it's a badass song, but how are we going to do it? You know? And me and Shan just sat down and said, Hey, this is how we'll play the riff. Cause it can be played kind of a couple different ways. And I didn't know if the, the producer was just going to loop it or we'd actually play it. And it ended up me and Shan played the riff just straight through. <laughs> like, so that's all just live playing the riff over and over and over. <laughs> and, you know, after one take, you basically have it. And, you know, it's, yeah, Bootsy's, you know, it's phenomenal. And it, 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 it kind of came together pretty good and, and kind of, we shifted like just slightly because there's some soul feels you just can't get, you know, you just don't have it in you. And I think there, there, it was just slightly shifted, but it was super fun to lay down and then afterward be like, oh, nice. It started to build, you know, that's one of the songs, you, you know, like DJs and, and, and loop based creators you have to have a vision and know that where you start it's going to get more dynamic as you go along well while we're talking about quote-unquote groove let's pivot over to the band's take of king floyd's 1970s top 10 hit groove me this one stuck out to me because of the pocket that you guys slid into along with how balanced the horn section was underneath john's vocals and then you add in some very tasty solos from chan and john this to me was a standout track on the album now as a live fan i'm kind of curious that horn section brought something to the song that made me think hmm i think about blues traveler tracks like go outside and drive i mentioned money back guarantee i think about the wolf is bumping from 2018's hurry up and hang around i could hear a horn section in a blues travel live show is there any chance that's ever going to happen you know, we always enjoy the the horn sit-ins. Like uh, on the road, we were out with Vanessa Collier in the fall, I believe. Or no, I think it was the spring. Um, yeah, whenever we play with someone with a horn, it's always it always just is a, a great sit-in. We always enjoy it. Usually we'll have one song and then be like, yeah, do another. I mean, <laughs> and it, it pairs really well with the harmonica playing. And, you know, I would love to. 
we thought about it in the past, but then then it's more a couple more people touring, and you know, it's it just it, uh, logistically hasn't worked out, but. We would love to have a couple more, you know, a three piece would be fantastic, but that's something I think we've talked about, but we've never really committed to doing it. Well, you mentioned something earlier and it would not be my radio personality to not touch on this a little bit more. We have Traveler's Blues. We have Traveler's Soul. What is the return of the Jedi to this trilogy? What genre of music (laughs) will you be tackling next? You know... We, it is not certain. I would tell you, actually, if we, if we knew. We don't. As of now, we're not. We, we haven't committed to what, what the third installation will be. <laughs> Hopefully, right. it's not jazz. <laughs> I was going to say, it could be Traveler's Dubstep, maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, something. But it might, it might be. You know, we might in the next, we've talked about some, like, you know, kind of, you know, kind of dance stuff. And maybe that would be a cool way to go. Get some electronic producers and and see see if that would be something that would work. But uh, we're open minded, and you know, we're having a blast doing these things. So it's great to be able to pull apart these you know iconic songs and things you know, and and listen to things. Kind of the analytics of how these songs fit together and stuff is it's really fun. Well, I am looking forward to finding out what that third album is. But for my last question, Tad, if you had to sum up Blues Traveler's musical legacy in three songs, which three would you choose? Ooh. Uh, Let me see. I think I'd go But Anyway, just because I think it's an iconic song of the beginning of Traveler, and it really identifies with what was the strengths of of the band. I think pretty angry is one in there because it tells the story of what happened, you know? Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's such a moving song. Um, you know, I think that has a, has a role there. You know, you're asking what three songs. And then for me, I, I, I would go back to reach me because it's my favorite song to play with just because it's just fun to play. And it's, you know, on a personal level, it's my involvement and, and, you know, joining of the band. So those three things kind of, you know, are, are kind of important if you're looking at a timeline and kind of the history of the band. Those three would stand out to me. Well, Tad, this has been an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the many amazing live concerts. And more importantly, thank you so much for joining me tonight on my weekly mixtape. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, dude, thank you so much. It was great talking. If we play anything, if we're through Jersey, please get in touch with me. Come say hi backstage. Certainly will. Yeah, please do. And to all the mixtapers out there, thank you so much for listening. Remember to head to myweeklymixtape.com to hear the full catalog of My Weekly Mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.